And this is what we read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, it's really uh, wonderful to be back. Uh, it's great to see you all again. Uh, I, I come back, as I always do, from holidays with a new shirt. Uh, I'm sure people have already noticed that. I noticed this morning uh, that it's a Czech shirt. I know there are some people in this church who like to make sport of my collection of uh, Czech shirts. But uh, I didn't even notice. It was an accident. Uh, but a new shirt and a new series. We're starting this morning uh, a, a six-week series or so on the book of uh, Colossians, uh, which is a letter uh, that you probably would have picked up on. was uh, written by Paul and Timothy. Uh, it was written in about AD 60 uh, to uh, a group of Christians living uh, in Colossae, which was a, a city in the Roman Empire. Uh, and in this section that we're looking at today, we get this uh, great model of prayer. Uh, it would be fair to say I think that most of us struggle with prayer. Uh, most of us don't set aside the time that we ought to, uh, to pray, uh, partly I suppose because we don't realise how vital it is to, uh, to our life with God. But even when we do uh, set aside the time to pray, we often struggle to know what to pray for. Uh, and the things that we end up praying for are often uh, no greater than our grandma's, grandma's sore toe or something like that. But here in this, uh, in this letter that Paul and Timothy wrote to the Colossians, we get this amazing, expansive, uh, wonderful prayer uh, that uh, is a great model for us as well in our prayers. What, uh, how should we pray? What should we pray uh, not just for ourselves, but for our fellow Christians. Well, Paul and Timothy begin their letter by telling uh, the Colossian church 
that whenever they pray, whenever they pray for the Colossians, they always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of the faith and the love of the Colossians, uh, their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and their love for all the saints, that is, their love for their fellow Christians. Uh, for a start, even that, that simple prayer is amazingly countercultural. It's deeply countercultural because uh, for most people in our world to thank God for someone's faith and love just is a bit of a nonsense. Uh, to most people it would seem strange to think that faith and love came from God. We, we think that the, the, the faith of a person is their prerogative, it's, it's their uh, expression of their will. But in the Bible, true faith in Jesus Christ, true love for Jesus, true love for Jesus' body, the church, is a gift of God. And so Paul and Timothy say, whenever we pray for you, we always thank God for your faith and your love. Imagine, uh, imagine if uh, I came up to you and I said, I just really want to thank you. I want to thank you for building the Eiffel Tower. It's a great what a great service you've done to the world. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Because you hadn't built the Eiffel Tower. We didn't, haven't built the Eiffel Tower and our faith and our love and the love of, and faith of other Christians is not our work or their work, but it's God's work. In verse 8, Paul and Timothy uh, refer to the love of these Colossians as a love in the Spirit. It's a, it's a love empowered by the Spirit of God. Faith and love of other Christians is a great miracle of God and they're a great miracle of God which we ought to be deeply thankful for. So thankful in fact that Paul and Timothy say that when they see it in these Colossian Christians they pray without ceasing. They pray always. That's how excited they are. And Timothy and Paul haven't even met these Christians. They've only heard the reports. You know, someone might have sent a letter and said, look at what's happening in, in Colossae. Great news. And Paul and Timothy are so excited about the work of God among these people that they pray all the time. They're so excited about the miracle of God that they pray all the time. It's hard for us, I think, to get excited about reports of, uh, of, of people becoming Christians, isn't it? Uh, or to hear about things that are going on in other churches. Sometimes it's hard to get excited because it's so intangible. You know, someone comes to you and says, uh, great news, 10 people have become Christians uh, in this church over there. And you go, well, you know, that's really exciting, but it's, sort of, it's, it's hard to, to sort of measure up. But when the stories start to come in, that's when it gets exciting, isn't it? When you hear the concrete expressions of the faith and love of God's people spread out through all the churches, that's when you start to get excited and you start to be thankful about what God is doing. See, let me tell you about the woman uh, that I know. Uh, her husband uh, drank himself to a, to a marriage breakdown. He drank himself finally to a stroke. Uh, he drank himself finally to full-time care. Eventually, uh, after all those hardships, uh, this lady's husband repented uh, and for the last 10 years or so, she's been bringing him to church in his wheelchair every Sunday. Let me tell you about the couple uh, that I heard about in a church while I was in Geelong. 
Uh, They were told before their baby was born that it wouldn't last uh, a week after birth. It had a genetic defect of some kind and it wouldn't last. They wouldn't live. Uh, And because of their faith in Christ and their trust in God, they decided that they had to bring this baby to full term even though they knew that it would be born only to die. Well, let me tell you about the guy that I knew whose eccentricities and oddness knew virtually no bounds. Uh, Almost everybody wrote him off uh, as as a bit strange, but who himself never wrote anybody off, who had an amazing gift for spending time with people from other backgrounds, people with serious mental health issues. He persevered with other people when almost no one persevered with him. Why did he do it? Because of his faith in Christ and his love for the saints that God had worked in him. The faith and love of each of those people and each of the people that we know who are Christians are all great gifts and great miracles of God and we ought to be incredibly thankful for each one of them. As you look around the church today, as you think about uh, your friends and your family who know Christ, as you think about maybe people that you know at work, uh, it's great to look around and to notice and to see what God has done in those people's lives. And it's even better, it's one thing to notice, isn't it, but it's, it's even better to stop and to say, Lord, thank you so much for that. <laughs> it's even better to do that when it's the person in the church that you find so hard to get along with. It's a great remedy uh, for uh, for discontent and for lovelessness is to be thankful to God for the things that he does in the lives of other people. And in fact, it's one of the great joys, I think, in the Christian life is to thank God for the love and the faith of other Christians. Well, that's the first thing that Paul and Timothy pray. They give thanks. They give thanks to God for what he's done Uh, in the lives of these Christians. But uh, Paul and Timothy also want to pray that God would do more, that more would happen in the lives of these people. Uh, Because the Gospel has brought about this faith and and love, Paul and Timothy uh, want to pray that God would do more, that he might fill them with knowledge. He says in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this, here's the reason, in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. In what way does knowledge of God's will equip us to continue uh, in the Christian life? Uh, In what way does knowledge of God's will uh, equip us to live a life worthy of God and pleasing God in every way? Well, in the rest of the letter uh, to the Colossians, Paul and Timothy cover that I suppose uh, and we'll be looking at that over the next few weeks. But here in this section they give uh, four brief answers to how the knowledge of God's will uh, changes uh, people's lives. First, the knowledge of God's will leads to bearing more and more fruit. So Paul and Timothy, Timothy say we pray this in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. When uh, we hear words like the knowledge of God's will, uh, we might be inclined to think of things like what is God's will for my life? 
you know, we, we tend to think of questions like, is it God's will for me to take this job or is it God's will for me to uh, buy that house or, or, or whatever it might be? But that isn't what Paul and Timothy have in mind here. Uh, they've already used uh, the expression that they use here of bearing fruit and increasing. Uh, they've used that back in verse 6 in relation to the Gospel. So, uh, in, in verse 6 they say that it was the Gospel that was bearing fruit all over the world, bearing fruit and increasing all over the world just as it had been doing among the Colossians. How had the Gospel been bearing fruit and increasing uh, among the Colossians? It was bearing fruit chiefly in terms of those two characteristics, wasn't it, of faith in Christ and love for the saints. And Paul and Timothy call those characteristics the faith and love which spring from hope and that hope itself is grounded in the Gospel. So verse 5, the faith and love which spring from hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth the gospel that has come to you. All over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. You see, the $64,000 question here is, how does God work faith faith and love in his people? And the answer is, God does it through the good news of the gospel, through the hope of the gospel. Faith and love spring from hope in the gospel. Where the gospel is heard by the power of the Holy Spirit it produces more love and more faith. That's not to say we don't need to hear things like don't steal or don't be sexually immoral or don't murder, don't hate. We do need to hear those things. God's will is revealed in the Gospel not just in Jesus' death but also in the way that it describes the shape of the world to come, how God is putting the world right? What will a restored new creation look like? But those commands wrenched out of the context of God's love uh, for us in Christ and wrenched out of the context of the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit and wrenched out of the context of our love for Christ because of what he has done, wrenched out 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 of that background, these commandments are powerless. They're powerless to transform us. All they do is condemn us. Thomas uh, Chalmers was a Scottish Presbyterian minister. He lived uh, in the late 1700s and the early 1800s and he wrote uh, quite a well-known sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a great name, isn't it? Uh, $10 to anyone who can use expulsive uh, in a sentence this week. But but it's 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 an amazing sermon. Uh, You can get it on the web. Uh, But listen to what he writes. This is what he writes. He says, the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. It's not enough to hold out to the world's eye the mirror of its own imperfections. It's not enough to come forth with a demonstration, however pathetic or evanescent or fleeting, the character of all its enjoyments. It's not enough to travel the walk of experience along with you and speak to your own conscience and your own recollection of the deceitfulness of the heart and the deceitfulness of all that the heart is set upon. See what he's saying? He's saying it's not enough to go on and on about all the terrible sins and crimes and, uh, and, and failures of humanity and the world. It's not enough 
just to, to say, don't do that. You know, look how bad it is. We need something more, he says. We need a new affection, a new love. And that's what Paul and Timothy are saying here in Colossians. They're saying that this faith and love uh, springs from the hope of the gospel. It comes from the knowledge of what God has done in Christ. It comes from hearing the good news about Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. It comes from seeing God's rich promises in the Old Testament being worked out again and again and fulfilled in Christ. It comes from seeing God's great promises of what he's going to do when the world is restored in Christ. Paul and Timothy know that and so they pray that these Colossian Christians will be filled with the knowledge of God's will in the Gospel. So that springing out of that will come a greater faith in Christ and love for God's people. So the knowledge of God's will, first of all, leads to bearing fruit. Second, the knowledge of God's will in the Gospel leads to an even greater growth in the knowledge of the Gospel. Paul and Timothy write, We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, growing in the knowledge of God. It seems strange, doesn't it, really, that you might pray that someone would be filled with the knowledge of God so that they might grow in the knowledge of God. It seems kind of a little bit tautological, saying the same thing twice. Uh, but, but you need more knowledge, don't you, to grow in knowledge. Uh, if you ask a kid in primary school uh, and a teenager in high school and a lecturer at university, if they can all do maths, all of them will probably say yes. Maybe some won't. But they will all say, yeah, I can do maths. But when they answer that question, they're talking about different levels, aren't they? You know, the kid in primary school can do addition and subtraction and whatever else you do. <laughs> in maths, the kid in high school can do, I don't know, shapes and geometry and all that kind of stuff. But then the people at university can do whatever it is they do, matrices and vectors and tensors and integral calculus and all that fun stuff. But anyway, but the point is that they're all studying the same subject, aren't they? And so they're not lying when they say, yes, I, I can do maths. They're all studying the same subject, uh, but they all understand it at different levels. But each of those different levels builds upon the previous one. So you need to have done primary school in order to do high school. You need to have done high school and primary school in order to do university. Now, when it comes to maths, most of us are probably pretty content to say, I've learned enough, you know? I don't want to know anymore. I can add, I can subtract and that's all I need to be able to do. And that might be fair enough when it comes to a subject like maths. But when it comes to a person, that's deeply offensive, isn't it? Imagine if you were in the middle of telling me a story uh, about you know, what you're going to do or you know, what you've done in your life or something and then I interrupted you in the middle and said, you know, just stop there. I've heard enough. I'm really not interested in you that much. Uh, I've heard enough about you. Uh, you know, it's deeply offensive, isn't it? And yet, isn't it true that we can kind of treat God in the same way? Is that we say, I know the basics, I know enough to be saved, I'm not interested in knowing more. That might be fair enough in mathematics, 
but you can't say that to God. And so Paul and Timothy pray that these Colossian Christians would be filled with knowledge. Why? So that they would grow in knowledge and so that their knowledge would expand and expand and expand so that their minds and hearts might be filled with the wonder of knowing God. So Paul and Timothy pray that these Colossians might bear fruit, they might grow in knowledge. But third, they pray that uh, this knowledge of God's will uh, would fill them uh, so that it would equip them with great endurance and patience according to God's mighty power. The knowledge of God's will in the Gospel equips us with great endurance and patience according to God's mighty power. So Paul and Timothy write, we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. It's a little bit shocking uh, at first, I think, uh, to see Paul linking God's power uh, with knowledge. You know, it's a bit surprising, I I think, that God's power is mediated to us or comes to us through knowledge. For the most part, I think we tend to have a kind of a mystical understanding of God's power. So we kind of almost view God's power and strength coming to us almost as if by magic. You know, you pray a prayer, God, strengthen me, and the next moment, you know, you're kind of bolstered uh, to go out and do whatever it is. But Paul and Timothy are here saying that actually God's power comes through knowledge. They pray that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they might be filled with God's power. Now, at one level that seems strange, but at another level it's actually kind of obvious that that's true. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day while I was on holidays and she works in family law. Now, family law is not the kind of thing for the weak need you know, and for the faint-hearted. It's a, it's a terrible industry or job to work in, really. Uh, and I said, you know, we sort of talked about how does she survive in, in family law? And she said to me, you know, her secret for surviving in family law is reading the Bible and praying. It's amazing, isn't it? And yet it's not amazing how true that is. Isn't it? You know, we find the challenges of life, we find ourselves weak-kneed and faint-hearted and we wonder, how am I going to make it through this? And what is it that strengthens us? What is it that God uses to equip us and to strengthen us and to fortify us for the challenges ahead? It is truth in the Bible, isn't it? How was it that the, uh, that the saints recorded in Hebrews 11, how was it that they uh, conquered kingdoms and administered justice and uh, fought the fury of the flames and received back people from the dead? How was it they did it? It was by hearing God's promises and believing them. It's not that the words in the Bible are kind of a magical incantation. They're not magic words. They strengthen us by giving us knowledge of who God is and what the world is like. And they drive us to put our trust in God again, in our God who's strong when we're weak. So Paul and Timothy pray for these Colossian Christians that they would be filled with knowledge so that by that God would equip them 
for great patience and great endurance. It's interesting as well, isn't it, that, uh, that, they, that, the, that the reason for God's power is that they might endure and that they might be patient. You know, we might first of all think, uh, I want God's power so that I can win, win people, win the world for Christ. But Paul and Timothy pray for great endurance and for great patience. Well, that's the third thing. Uh, and fourth and lastly, uh, the knowledge of God's will in the Gospel drives us to give thanks to the Father. So Paul and Timothy write, we pray that you might be filled with the knowledge of God in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Our knowledge of God feeds our praise. The more we know about God, the more we can praise him on account of what he's done. Paul and Timothy finished this section with, by highlighting uh, two profound gospel realities which are intended, I think, to drive us and to drive the Colossians uh, to that joyful thanks to God. First of all, they say to the Colossians that God has qualified you. God has qualified you to share in the new kingdom, in the new world that he is creating through Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know if anyone watched the tennis last night. Did anyone watch... <laughs> people rolling their eyes and nodding. Uh, but tennis season is upon us, isn't it? You know, and uh, it's great to watch... Uh, the tennis in the Australian Open starts tomorrow. But I was wondering, uh, you know, what would it take for me to play at the Australian Open? Uh, and uh, probably if you <laughs> saw me on the tennis court, you'd wonder, but what would it take? And so I looked it up. I looked up what the requirements are. And, uh, <laughs> and there's 128 places. Okay, in the men's drawer, there's a hundred. Let me get this right. There's 104 are direct entries based on world ranking. Okay, so you have to have played really well for the last year to be able to get into the first 104 slots. Uh, so that's kind of out, I suppose. Uh, then there's another 16 qualifying places. So they all this week they've been running the qualifying rounds, where if you're not quite good enough to get the first 104, you can play off against other second-rate players to try and get a chance to play. Uh, you know, to make one of these 16 qualifying positions. Well, I don't think I'm going to make it into that either. But then there's eight wild cards, right? There's eight wild card positions. So the runners, the people who run the tournament can, can say, yep, we're going to let that person play uh, in the tournament. Uh, but it turns out that the wild cards are not quite as wild as you might hope, Right? Uh, you know, there has to be particular people from different countries uh, and basically, let's be honest, it's not like they're going to turn up here and go, yep, you can play in this show. You're going to have to be already, uh, you know, a legitimate tennis player, aren't you? You know, and so I had this great hope as I looked up the, you know, the requirements for the Australian Open that, you know, maybe the wild card would be my chance of getting into the Australian Open but it's not, it's not going to happen. And yet, here's the remarkable truth about the Gospel. You know, we might never be able to get into the Australian Open because we'd never qualify. We'd never make it. We'd never make the grade. And it's the same in terms of God's new kingdom which is forging through Christ. We, we, we can never make the grade. No matter how many spots there are available, we'll never make the grade. We'll never qualify. But Paul says, 
Here's the good news of the gospel. God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. No human being except Jesus Christ has ever qualified on their own merits to get into God's new kingdom. But the good news is that if we trust in Christ, God has qualified us to be a partaker of it. The second aspect of the good news that Paul and Timothy highlight is that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Or you might say he's rescued us from the tyranny of sin and brought us under the loving reign of Jesus. And he does that by redeeming us. Now when we hear the word uh, redeem, we might think that it means something like rescue. To redeem something is just to rescue someone from some kind of hardship or something like that. But it's actually more, uh, there's more to it than that. In the first century, uh, redemption was a, world, a word that was bound up with slavery. You could become a slave for a whole lot of different reasons. Uh, you could be a slave because you were captured uh, in a time of war. Uh, you could become a slave because you'd gone bankrupt uh, and so you would sell yourself into slavery to pay off the debts that you owed. And if you had uh, done that, if you'd sold yourself uh, into slavery because of your vast, immeasurable debts, then what could happen was that someone would come along, uh, someone perhaps wealthier than you, a, a friend, a relative, and they would redeem you. They'd pay the debt and you'd be released from the slave master. And the Bible says that it's the same, it's very much the same in terms of our relationship with God. We're like people sold into slavery. We have this vast debt against God because of our sins, a vast debt that we can't pay off and we've been sold into slavery. We've been sold into slavery to sin and to Satan. He's our master. We do his will. We do his bidding. We're locked up and we can't pay to redeem ourselves. But Paul says the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has paid the price of freedom. What was the price of freedom? The price of freedom was the life of God's own son. And Jesus has given that up to redeem us from the debt of our sin and from our slavery to sin. You see, the greater our understanding of the dimensions of the gospel and all its vastness, the greater our praise for God. It's a great model for prayer, isn't it, here in Colossians chapter 1? It's a great model of prayer, not just for ourselves, in fact, not even chiefly for ourselves. But when we sit down and think, what can we pray? What can I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters in the church? What can I pray for them? Well, Paul and Timothy show us the way. We can give thanks to God for their faith and love. And we can pray to God that he would fill them with knowledge of God's will and the gospel so that they would bear fruit, so that they would grow in knowledge, so that they would be strengthened with God's might and so they would joyfully give thanks to God who has qualified them to share in his inheritance. Well, we're going to pray uh, now and I thought that maybe what we would do first of all is have a time of silent prayer. Uh, I thought a great challenge would be 
to pick out the person in the church that you find it hardest to get along with and to think how to pray for God's gift of faith and love in their life. Maybe you might like to think of other people that you know outside the church as well and you might like to think of the best example in the church as well of faith and love and to pray and to give thanks for that and to pray that God might increase his work in their life. Uh, And then after we've had a bit of time to pray for that, I'll finish in prayer as well. Let's pray.